Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, Communications Manager at MLI, and today we're pleased to bring you a conversation between MLI Monk Senior Fellow Ken Coates and J.P. Gladue, one of Canada's foremost Indigenous entrepreneurs. Coates and Gladue cover a wide range of issues, particularly looking at how new, meaningful partnerships with Indigenous people in the natural resource sector serve as the front line of economic reconciliation with Canada's Indigenous peoples. This is the first entry in a series on this important subject. Enjoy. We're very fortunate to have J.P. Gladot with us today. People who watch the work of McDonald laurie Institute will have seen J.P. a couple of times in the past, including in some of our panel presentations. Um, J.P. is the former president of the Canadian Council on Aboriginal Business. He is one of Canada's leading entrepreneurs. He's a man of great creativity and great innovation. He shows enormous dedication to First Nations issues across the country and starting with his own community but with a particular passion for um, Indigenous business development and has been done two things, I think, in many ways. One of them is to chronicle the growth of Indigenous business over the last decade or so. Um, he has been the face of Indigenous business in Canada and has done an amazing job of, of shocking everybody with one of the great economic success stories in, in recent Canadian history, and that's the rise and success of Indigenous business. Um, and the second thing he does is he spends an enormous amount of time speaking to First Nation communities and working with them on, on business development strategies. And in recent months, he, uh, having left the Canadian Council on Aboriginal Business, he's become far more actively involved in the oil and gas industry in Western Canada. And it's largely in that context we're going to speak to him today. So, JP, we find you at the Pearson Airport today, and welcome. Thank you again. Always a pleasure to uh, to spend some time with you, even even virtually. It's still, it's still good to sort of see you. <laughs> so, so JP, tell us about your new your new commitment. You're you're in this really interesting new leadership sort of situation that I think is going to change your role in Canada, but actually accelerate your contributions to Indigenous business development. Yeah, it was an interesting shift, Ken. As you know, that I was ready to to take on the role of the CEO of Boucher Group up in Fort McMurray after I left CCAB and price of oil and COVID hit. Uh, I found myself unemployed and without an address and living out of a suitcase. So it was an interesting time. And I was thinking to myself, what the heck am I going to do now? But, you know, you're, thank you so much for the warm introduction. I was thinking at the time, you know, I've got this really amazing organization or this, this experience with amazing organization, the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And then I was thinking to myself, I should continue along that vein in the sense of getting in the grass wherever I can to, to actually exercise uh, on the ground, some of the things that I was so fortunate to to build with an exceptional team at CCAP. And I also started thinking about uh, what Canada has as far as Indigenous entrepreneurs uh, in a space of creating the relationships, as you've described, government relations, Indigenous relations. And they're really, I mean, there's some great firms out there, uh, but I, I don't think there's enough of us. I don't think there's enough of us Indigenous leaders doing this type of work for our own people at that level. So I started Mokote. Mokote is uh, uh, is my, my Anishinaabe name. It means bare heart. And I started a consulting company. Uh, and uh, I quickly found myself entertaining positions and roles in other organizations. And there wasn't quite a fit for the first little bit. And then two exceptional roles came along. One is the president of A to A, which is uh, the rail corridor from Alaska to Alberta. Uh, and the most recent one uh, is the chief development relations officer for Steel River Group. 
based out of Calgary and as well as uh, taking on a role with the infrastructure um, organization, which we're just creating Steel River Infrastructure. And that's an opportunity to uh, talk about a new model that's being proposed, a, a P4. I mean, your, 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 your readership, your listeners are very familiar with P3s. Well, the P4 is really focused on the people uh, aspect of it and creating opportunities for new models in Indigenous ownership and, and active participation in the development and ownership of infrastructure in this country, so uh, I've been uh, I've been very uh, very fortunate uh, to have uh, this opportunity, and you know just going back to Mokotea as well, just I'm engaging in forestry activities, negotiations, uh, building bi uh, business case studies of Indigenous entrepreneurs, doing uh, some really great work with the uh, Federal Resiliency Task Force and what what a resilient recovery would look like for this country. Uh, volunteering some time with Canada Action and the Indigenous Resource Network that's been created, I've been very proud to be a part of, um, as well as um, um, leading a, a group of leaders from all sectors um, around a boreal uh, leadership campaign on responsible development and conservation. So I'm 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 in all sorts of areas, quickly finding myself with uh, very little time to do any fishing. <laughs> Well, and we know that fishing is the most important part of life, so make sure you, you carve out <laughs> enough time for that as you sort of go along. JP, tell us, tell us a little bit about O2A, um, Alberta to Alaska Railway and the Corridor Project. This is something that you and I have talked about in the past a number of times and we know about it, but most Canadians are still pretty vague about what this is all about. Well, it's a project led by the chairman and founder, Sean McCaution. And he's brought together uh, a group of leaders around him. There, there's uh, myself, uh, Robert Dove, who's some of the financing, and, and uh, John Caution, who's down in the States, helping with the Alaskan portion of the conversation. Um, the project uh, got its feet going about four years ago, um, and it's really starting to, forgive the puns, uh, pick up steam, and it's starting to be, uh, become a little bit more on track in, in identifying a corridor between Alaska and um, to get to port and uh, and then into Alberta, just uh, northwest of uh, Fort Mackay. And the real fun part about this and how it ties in really great with the Steel River Group is it's around infrastructure. And there's um, a lot of um, opportunity for uh, Indigenous communities to, to own uh, a portion of the railway. As we know, many of our Canadian resources, uh, particularly oil and gas, um, have limited capacity to get to tidewater. So this is this is an opportunity to increase Canada's competitiveness by ensuring that we can get our uh, natural resources uh, to market uh, in a timely and economic uh, fashion with the involvement, um, uh, meaningful involvement and engagement with uh, Canada's First Nations as well as uh, the the, uh, the the indigenous people from Alaska, so it's uh, it's it's an exciting it's an exciting project. It's going across, uh, you know, the Yukon and uh, a little bit in the Northwest Territories and um, and Alberta as far as the Canadian connections go. So, so JP, answer a puzzle for me. Try to address this puzzle for me. Um, indigenous folks have been involved with the oil and gas industry for quite a while, for very long without without much control, and they were sort of imposed on them. Some people found jobs, a few people got some companies going, but not very much. If you look over the last 20 years, it's been one of the most remarkable transitions we've ever seen. You now have hundreds of indigenous companies, you have thousands of employees, you have communities that are actively involved in ownership uh, opportunities around infrastructure. You have a very active engagement with natural gas and, and, and bitumen pipelines. What, what's going on? And 
My view basically is that indigenous folks are not opposed. They're opposed to bad oil and gas development. They're opposed to incautious oil and gas development. But they want to see development that is respectful, beneficial to their communities, et cetera, et cetera. So what's going on? And, and is my, my description of active engagement in the sector an accurate one? Yeah, I, I believe you've hit it on the head. There's been a, a, a number of uh, legal cases that have set up Indigenous communities for in a place where they are being put in the forefront and being asked to participate in the forefront with natural resource companies because the natural resource companies understand and they are the longest standing um, organizations that have intersected with our people on the land, I think. Um, they understand that if they're going to get their projects built, that they've got to build these meaningful relationships with communities. Long, long gone are the days where natural resources were, are going to be extracted from our territories and we have no say. Um, many of our communities, including, you know, even growing up in northern Ontario and watching logging trucks go by my community, long gone are those days. So communities um, see the opportunity. Um, living in poverty is no fun. Um, managing poverty, when you talk to communities and chiefs, like that's that's no way to be. We were once a, a very prosperous uh, people, and due to colonialism and many of the practices that came along with it, put us in a corner, which uh, uh, prohibited us from being active participants in the economy. But we're Canada's first entrepreneurs. We know business, and there are thousands of entrepreneurs in this country, many of them participating in the oil and gas sector. And the communities that have proliferated in with strong economies, say in Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC, and the territories, they, they have a strong reliance um, on natural resource development, whether that's mining, oil and gas, or forestry. And and they understand the, the economic impact that that has in the communities, but they're not going to just throw all caution into the wind and not do responsible development. Because we have to live there. We've lived there for thousands of years, and we're going to be there for thousands more. Um, so we need to be able to sustainably and responsibly develop our resources whenever possible, um, using the best technology, using um, using our workforce, using our businesses. And and now it's it's really interesting time, um, kind of what you've alluded to. We, we did get some employment role jobs at the beginning. Then we start to develop uh, businesses to compete in the supply chain. And now we're becoming the primary producers or the infrastructure owners of, of infrastructure that's going to support our resource development. So... It's an incredibly exciting time, and I'd say the last 10 years has been, I mean, you mentioned 20, but I'd say the last 5 to 10 years, it's just been explosive, um, and it's really exciting uh, to be in this uh, in, in this arena. So, JP, I completely agree, and, and uh, we've talked about these issues over the last number of years and seen this really positive and constructive development take place. Why do Canadians in general not seem to understand this? I mean, I, I find it so puzzling. I mean, part of it is the protests that happen, say, for the people in the Lower Mainland who have good and legitimate questions and concerns about oil and gas development. Um, part of it is the environmental movement, which is very heavily involved. But, but more generally, what, what are you doing to sort of change the attitude of Canadians? You did this at CCAB, but Canadians are very resistant to understanding that Indigenous people are entrepreneurial, successful um, business-oriented and and particularly anxious to destroy the poverty model. You've hit the two big ones, and they're really around education. Um, and I think media needs to understand, and, and, and that's it's just the way media is, that, you know, sensationalizing the conflict, which there is some. And to your point, uh, you know, for, for good reason, we have do, a lot of communities have uh, concerns about oil and gas development. Responsible uh, development and sustainable development 
um, in partnerships with with environmental organizations is possible. Uh, you know, as an example, you know, I, I don't believe oil and gas companies get up in the morning and the first thing in their mind is what are they going to do to to destroy the environment. And I think the the more moderate environmental organizations, I think the last thing in their mind is how we're going to destroy jobs and, and the economy. So it's about finding that balance. Um, and, you know, Canada is just really waking up to this Indigenous, uh, this idea that there's Indigenous people still thriving in this country and that we have rights and um, that we're still here. We haven't gone away. I mean, the TRC added a lot of light um, to the conversation. I think it's going to be really important to continually educate Canadians about our aspirations and that it's as diverse as our people are and that we're not homogenous and that we do have opportunities across sectors. So we just got to keep at it. We got to continue to have these forums. We need to invite Canadians into these conversations. We need to ensure that our ideas uh, are reflected in policy uh, and that we're supported to be able to participate effectively in the economy through things like supply chains, etc. That's really great, a great conversation, actually. And, and I want to pick up on one of your points about infrastructure. So you're now involved with two organizations. You've described A to A, Alberta to Alaska Corridor. You're also involved in the Steel River Group. Um, I want you to tell us a bit about that organization, perhaps in the context of explaining why Indigenous interest in infrastructure is so strong. I'll use the one example that's been discussed widely. Coastal Gas Link is going to take natural gas from northeast British Columbia to the LNG plant in Kitimat, British Columbia. They've signed 20 agreements with every uh, First Nation along the route and, and have very widespread support for that particular project. I always find it kind of intriguing because some people, when I speak to them about this, they go, well, why are Aboriginal people so focused on infrastructure? So give me your thoughts on, on why infrastructure is so important to Indigenous communities. Well, being on the front end of developing infrastructure and, you know, they both the, the railway corridor or pipelines or gas lines, uh, having a say in where that infrastructure gets placed on the ground is really important because we do have long-standing relationship with the land and building infrastructure in the most appropriate way as well as cost-effective way is really important. But then once you're the owner of infrastructure, that's long-term revenue for your communities and the products that go through there. You're an integral part of the supply chain. You're, you're the vehicle to make sure that the products get to, get to market. Um, and then from there, you start to build revenue, you start to build business capacity all the way down the supply chain to ensure that our businesses are proliferating in everything that is associated with that said vehicle. In this instance, the, the gas line. And then the other thing, if I can relate to another a really great example here in Ontario around road infrastructure and putting Indigenous communities into the driver's seat of designing the road to go to a ring of fire mining development. Um, what that does is it empowers the communities to be uh, the ultimate decision makers in how and what comes uh, down that road. That's a far cry from 20, 30 years ago when we had no say. And it's, it's a, and you know, the bottom line too, is a major revenue generated for our communities. So we can start managing the, uh, the wealth rather than poverty we've been managing for way too long. JP, I want to pick up on that point again. I know you've had conversations over time with Crystal Smith, who is the chief counselor for the Heisler First Nation in, in, the, in, in North, Northwest British Columbia. And in conversations with her, you sort of say, well, why are you getting involved in LNG Canada? Why are you making such big commitments as a community to uh, training your people, getting involved with business, supporting the idea of the, of the project? And it's kind of an interesting thing. Her, her first comment always back is that they want to they cut all financial ties with Ottawa. 
that basically as the Heisler people, they want to be completely financially independent. They don't want to have to go to Ottawa to say, we need some money for a school, we need some money for a, a seniors complex, we need some money to run our own government. And, and it seems to me that one of the, the passionate, powerful things about Indigenous entrepreneurship is that it has that community and nation-building element to it, something we don't see that very often in the, in the non-Indigenous population. That Indigenous business is about profit, it's about employment, it's about setting up good and successful companies, but it's also about building nations. Do you care to comment on that? Yeah, Crystal is 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 an amazing leader, and uh, you know she. I think it was uh, you know the the handoff from Alice to her has been extraordinary. Again, uh, extraordinary leadership in the sense that Alice inspired this generation of leaders that are coming up, and and you see that. So I mean that's part about nation building and, and and empowering your your next generation, your next cohort of leaders to come up to take the helm. I in many communities leaders want to get from under the, the, the purse strings of the federal government because it restricts our ability for decision-making, uh, self-governance, um, being, being told what you, need, what you have to spend your money on is, is demoralizing. How can you be a proud nation when you're having to rely on somebody else and they direct you from a paternalistic way on how to spend your resources? We've got to get from outside of that government framework. Um, and one way to do that is to build our own economy so that we can empower ourselves in, in spending the resources, which is not only the financial ones, but the human capacity that we're developing where we feel that it should be uh, applied. You know, they have an extraordinary opportunity. I think I recently saw a post. Um, it might have been Ellis's post about allocating or $400,000 to building a school on their own without any federal support. I mean, that's that's incredible. And then lastly, um, sort of going back to, uh, you know, infrastructure and, and nation building. Um, Ken, when you come to visit me at my community, when I take you fishing, if I pick you up at a rental car and we're going down the road, and, I, and I've used this example before, and we hit, a, we hit a bump, and we're both gonna cringe, but we're gonna go, oh, thank goodness it's a rental. But if you pick me up in your car and we're going down that same road, you're going to be sure to miss that bump. And that's because you're invested in that vehicle. And having investment from our people in these types of vehicles, infrastructure vehicles, only serves to extend the life of them, to, to be sharply aware of all the components of that vehicle and how it runs, educating ourselves. It, it offers an opportunity to, to also make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. But if, if you're not invested, your, your learnings are, are greatly diminished. That's a really excellent point. And I, I'm like you, I'm very, very impressed with Ellis Ross, who is the former chief counselor for the Heisler folks and now a liberal member of the Legislative Assembly, who really did set a real path. And it's interesting, you know, JP, that, that one of the comments that he made, I remember asking him, saying, okay, what was your biggest problem? You know, and this is a standard question, you know, is it getting money? Is it getting the government approval, environmental regulations? And his observation, and, and Ellis, as you know, is a very straightforward guy. And, and Ellis's comment was, my own community. My hmm. own community was the biggest problem. And of course, he loves his community. He loves his nation. He devoted his entire life to it. So I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, you know, when you've been poor so long, and you've been colonized so long, you know, you're just used to everything going badly, and you don't expect good things to happen. So he said the hardest part was getting his community to believe that good things can happen. And of course, now they're seeing that benefit in some very interesting kind of ways. So, JP, let me, you know, you've been so kind giving us so much of your time, and I know you have to jump on a plane again. Finish with this one question. 
what should Canadians as a whole think about the business empowerment of Indigenous people, particularly in oil and gas? What should they think about all of that? And the context for this is simple. When they signed modern treaties with Anishka, for example, in the Yukon, the naysayers were saying, oh, we'll never get any business done in the Nass Valley. We'll never get any business done in the Yukon because the modern treaties will get in the way. And that's not true. The Nass Valley has become very entrepreneurial. The Yukon is amazing strides that they're, they're making up there. You know the situation there well. Then when they passed Bill C-69, which brought in new regulations and new rules about downstream impacts and things of that sort, they said, well, the, there's no way the mining sector is going to be destroyed. And, well, if you talk to the Mining Association of Canada, they'll tell you that they're actually very comfortable with Bill C-69, that they've actually made it work. These barriers are not insurmountable. Um, and I think we're now facing the same conversation about UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And naysayers are saying, oh, we can't bring this in because it's going to grind our economy to a halt. Well, none of those things have happened, at least in my experience. You know, sometimes they slow down a little bit because you have to be more thoughtful and more careful. But in actual fact, the projects go ahead, agreements are reached. So my last question to you is, what should Canadians think about this? Is Indigenous empowerment coming at the expense of other people? Is Indigenous empowerment wrecking opportunities for non-Indigenous business? What's your thought about that? You know, I just always see it as an adder. When you've got uh, a knowledge and, and, and a way of being for thousands of years in a country like Canada and you're not capitalizing on that knowledge system, or it's people, I think, we're, we're missing out on an important segment, uh, an important value that's not being uh, integrated into our Canadian economy or, or our ways of being. One of my favorite things to do when I was younger was sitting with elders and learning about their stories and bringing those knowledge systems to the table and finding a way to build now where we are in, in Canada. And this is what Canadians, I think, need to think about is, is a new model of doing business together because um, it only serves to strengthen the bottom line. Sometimes it might, to your point, it might take a little bit longer, but some things uh, just need that time to mature so that we have the stronger outcomes. Um, especially when we think about the northern parts of our country, where a big part of the population is the Indigenous population. And it makes no economic sense. It doesn't matter who you are to be importing uh, labor and services and equipment if you've got it local. Because just from an economics perspective, it's using local capacity just makes more sense. And building that, uh, that northern capacity in the economy just makes sense. And then I guess lastly is when we look at the balance sheet of Canada and its Indigenous peoples, uh, for a very long time we still are falling in, in, in the, largely in the liability category with regards to lower education rates, high unemployment rates, high incarceration rates. Canadian taxpayers, we, we, I pay tax, we all pay for that. Uh, we need to be empowering the Indigenous population so that we are at par and better with regards to employment and education. That only serves to add to our country. And then and internationally, I mean, it's an embarrassment. Canada should be embarrassed about how it's treated its Indigenous people. I think we live in a global community and, and we can't be seen as laggards when it comes to human rights and Indigenous people. Canadians are waking up to, to the Indigenous population. I feel very proud to be an Indigenous Canadian and to be able to talk to strangers about being Indigenous and, and to break those stereotypes and to walk away having them think a little bit deeper on who they just met and the next time they may meet an Indigenous person or the next time they have a dinner conversation with other Canadians that aren't exposed to these wonderful issues. So 
Canadians just need to be a little bit more open and um, and engage and learn and and work with us and have conversations. Um, I think that their lives will be enriched. Well, JP, that was a brilliant answer to a very tough question. You never shy away from tackling the big ones or, or doing the hard work that has to be done. So uh, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak to the McDonnell-Laurie Institute as part of our general project on what we call the Front Lines of Reconciliation, which is the study of the impact of the Indigenous involvement in the oil and gas industry. We actually see this as being the place where Canada is working the best in terms of finding real models to collaborate with Indigenous communities and share prosperity really for the first time in modern Canadian history. I want to thank you too for your leadership of Indigenous business. Now you're really evolving leadership as you get involved in the infrastructure sector in a major way. And you know that we wish you all the very best in these new positions. So JP Gladeau, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks a lot, Ken. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me.